I start. So today we'll talk about building machine learning startups. And we have a special guest today, Elena. Elena is a CEO and co-founder at Evidently AI, which is a startup uh, that develops open source tools for machine learning model monitoring. She has been in machine learning since 2014 and uh, evidently is not her first startup before evidently uh, Elena co-founded an industrial AI startup. So Elena has a lot of experience with startups. And it's not the first time we speak to Elena, actually. So Elena is a returning star. And in February, she gave a presentation about how your machine learning project will fail, which is a great talk. And I recommend it to everyone. And check it. It's on our YouTube channel. Before this week, it was the most <laughs> popular uh, talk on our channel. Uh, now it's second uh, because of Santiago, uh, Santiago's talk on Monday. But this is a great talk, and uh, yeah, I do recommend checking it. So thanks for joining us again for the second time. Thanks. I'm super glad to join. Before we go into our main topic of building machine learning startups, um, let's talk a bit about your background. Can you tell us um, about your career journey so far? Mm -hmm. So in short, it has been either about startups or about machine learning on both pretty much for the last nine years. Uh, originally, I started in the startup scene in Berlin when I joined a startup that was doing some uh, e-commerce search aggregation. And that's how I was first introduced actually to both topics because they also were using some machine learning. Pretty basic things back then, but still. Uh, then I joined Yandex, which is a large search engine in Russia, and uh, I was running Startup Accelerator there. That is one of the things that I'm still super proud of because it's a very rewarding experience, like helping other people to launch their companies. And uh, you just meet so many people who are like active and doing things. It's actually very, very inspiring. So I, I got inspired too, and I joined an internal startup at Yandex, which was called Yandex Data Factory. The idea was that because Yandex did so many machine learning internally, we can apply it elsewhere. So we were working with different industries and I was doing business development mainly. Then I left to co-found this startup where we worked with manufacturing. So companies like steel making and aluminum production, oil and gas, helping them apply machine learning. I was uh, holding a product role and basically as a founder doing many other things because that's what you do when you do a startup and right now we're building a new startup related to uh, this open source model monitoring so you can check it out and try it out it's completely free and open source which is probably another topic to discuss why we do that but that said i want to also give a disclaimer that uh, like if you try to start a startup you'll get a lot of advice solicited and not and also please take everything i say with a grain of salt because no one is an expert in your business but still you can learn from some others mistakes and thoughts so just uh, adjust to the experience when you listen to someone. Mm -hmm. So including this podcast? Including, including this podcast. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Don't take it at first value. <laughs> okay. um, so do you know why people start uh, their own business? So what, uh, what motivates them? Why, uh, why not working just for a company? Well, you know, I think it really depends on different countries, different circumstances. It's also important to distinguish between starting a business. For example, uh, you can open a restaurant or you can teach a course, something that is, has a known business model or going into startups where you launch like some tech company and try to solve some, something completely new. It's a very different part because when you talk about traditional business, it is often, for example, for immigrants, it would be like kind of like, like survival strategy. Right, you come to your country, you start a business because the only way for you to, to build up wealth. Some people want to get rich. I would actually advise against that. If you want to get rich, there are maybe other schemes than just like building a startup. Some people want to solve uh, 
generally solve a problem they see. Some people just enjoy doing things from scratch. And that's probably me because uh, I'm one of those people who like to start up things from the very beginning. Can be inside a company, can be elsewhere, but it's all about, you know, just like doing something from scratch. Mm-hmm. So getting rich is not about startups. <laughs> well, you can succeed, but the chances are pretty low. So there are like more guaranteed paths, I would say. Working for big tech is probably much more. Uh, yeah, I think I read an article somewhere that... Um, if you take the expected uh, expected value, like basically how much on average you would earn working in a big tech company versus uh, creating a startup, then startup will give you smaller expected uh, return, so, so yeah. to say. But many people enjoy the journey, so <laughs> that's why they yeah. do. Yeah, I can imagine that uh, 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 when you make a startup, you said, uh, like in your previous startup, and I guess in your current one, you take product role, which meant you ended up doing many, many different things. And, uh, well, it's not just the product. It's basically everything that you need to get yourself to the next level, right? And it, in different stages in the company, that might mean different things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's say, yeah, I am motivated to start a startup. I know some machine learning, so I want to build a machine learning startup. Where can I get ideas for that? Well, first of all, don't. Like, don't start a machine learning startup. What I mean by that is that when you frame it like this, you actually kind of like decide on the solution. So you know the technology you're going to use instead of looking for a best way to solve a problem. So here's a trick, right? So you might know some machine learning, but ideally, if you're going to wait, is don't try to build a machine learning startup. Try to find a problem that you can genuinely solve. Just like a random example, say like you want to help uh, grocery stores to get rid of out of stock situations. And you think like, hmm, I'm gonna build like better forecasting models for them. But then when you come and talk to them, you might learn that it's not the forecasting that is the problem, but then for example, don't even have the data about what's there in the store. So the solution for them would be to actually build some sort of data collection through an app, maybe through something else. And if you solve this problem, you don't even need machine learning, you can create the value as is. And if you come with an idea, no, I only want to do the modeling, you might, pass on this opportunity, right? So it's better if you come with an open mind, if you can. That said, I know many people who would kind of settle on the technology and become this uh, hammer in search of a nail problem and some succeed. So, but probably if you can <laughs> try to avoid this. Yeah. Okay. So if all I want to do is do machine learning, so then maybe startup is not the best uh, way of doing this. There is Kaggle and other websites, right? Yeah. And uh, the thing is, I think in general, like if you come to a startup, your role will change so much. So you should not come with an idea of like, hey, I want to do this. And this is the only thing I know. You, you can do like this if you're an employee in the company with a predefined role, right? And you understand what's there in the market. With a startup, you'll be constantly doing very different things. Well, that said, I think there are some ways how you can search for ideas which might be related to machine learning or not. One would be actually to look at your own problems or better problems of your company, because when you are inside some business, you can observe some things and inefficiencies and come up with the idea like, hey, let's test it. Is it big enough of a problem? Might people actually like experiencing pain? Do they want to pay to solve it? And like these sort of things. Specifically for machine learning, I would definitely advise to try to team up with someone with domain expertise in an area that you're interested in. So it can be like, you know, people who are into insurance or into finance or into healthcare, because I think like the best way how right now you can create value with machine learning is applied to like other vertical domains. But for that, you typically would need someone who can explain you the things because you don't want to be reinventing the wheels and coming like with algorithms and like making things that are obvious, like coming up, hey, it's like we can do this, this great stuff. 
And I would also suggest maybe to follow other startups because if you don't yet understand like what is the um, what is a startup like, what is values on the market, what can become a company, I think just like developing this kind of sense of what's going on by following other like investment news, what type of companies have been started, it can give you this feeling. But don't try to search for an original idea. I think this is a sort of a kind of like caveat that many people fall into. It's like a trap. You say like, hey, someone else is already doing this. No, I should come up with something that will be absolutely non-existent before. But most typically, these are things that are not really needed because you just like, you know, try to come up with a shiny thing that no one ever going to use. Mm-hmm. So basically, to come up with idea, the best way is to, f- well, first of all, you can try to find some problems in your own life and see if there is something easy that you can uh, do to fix it. Or you team up with somebody, uh, somebody, let's say, who is coming from insurance or from some other domain, uh, and they can tell you about the problems they have, and then together you can think about the solution to these problems, right? So you need a non-technical co-founder who is a domain expert in some particular area. I would not say it's necessarily so, right? It's just like one way how you can find better problems than by searching it yourself and mm-hmm. ideally if this person like is as involved as they should be they should become a co-founder but you can also start a startup with like people you know and you don't have to be business people actually i think a lot of companies are started by the technical founders if you're ready to learn and pick up some things and do some sales probably that is not comfortable for many technical people mm-hmm. but not necessarily so right you can you can still learn all this yeah, let's uh, talk a bit about this uh, finding the co-founder. So mm-hmm. let's say I'm a technical person. So I know some machine learning. I know how to code. I'm not good at all with sales. I don't enjoy selling things. So I want to find somebody who is uh, who might enjoy doing these things and also the main expert in some area. So how do I go about uh, doing this? So who... who who do I need uh, like to, to start with and how do I find these people? Yeah, I think there is no silver bullet. It's always like, you know, how do I find like my best friends? Or, because <laughs> it, 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 it's really like there is no predefined recipe. One thing I can say that I think it's ideally you should have worked with this person before because teams that have just met, it's very difficult to maybe check like how compatible you are. And being co-founders is a lot more than just being colleagues because when you're colleagues, you can maybe... Be okay with most things. You don't have like to agree on about everything on the, you know, like values level. But when mm-hmm. it comes to being co-founders, like if you're successful, you're gonna be together for five, ten years, uh, working like uh, day and night. So you should really like click with this person and understand. And it, it should it, it's very like personal, right? So they're like just like people who can work together successfully and people who don't. And you should really check for this kind of personal compatibility and also motivation because sometimes people say like, hey, I'm gonna like join you with a startup but only like if you pay me this money or only if it's successful in the first year but startup is really a hard journey so you should check like the expectations of of, of each other but how exactly to find these people (laughs) i think we're looking at your past colleagues and people that you worked with maybe as partners maybe as clients maybe you started at school with is usually the better way but i also heard how people like just sometimes meet each other like at hackathons or at events Mm -hmm. but usually they still work together a bit right maybe not on a startup but on some projects on some events so you get a feeling of how well you communicate with person and uh, in general like how how well you get along so maybe you can build together a hackathon project and then you see how well you get along. Maybe, yeah. But hackathon is a bit of a like artificial, right? Thing is like okay. maybe one day you don't I think ideally you should have gone at least 
one uh, situation when you had some adversary, like some something's going on, something went wrong, mm-hmm. right? You had like a, a conflict. Conflict, right? Or just a difficult situation. Just don't know and understand how you deal with that, not just like in a fun project when no one really cares what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. I also heard about this, um, especially in Berlin, there are things, uh, meetups like that. I think they are called co-founder dating meetups. Mm-hmm. What do you think about these events? I think it can work. It's just like you expand your network, right? Naturally, this is another way to expand your network with the people who are active and interested. And I think like joining different communities is a great way to, to meet people. But it just often happens organically that you like first work on something else, right? But where you meet it, it's cool and community, uh, the conference, anything can happen. Mm-hmm. But I think you said uh, best uh, is... Uh... If you work with somebody, then these people are probably I mean, because you already as, know how to work with them. Work as in like work on something, not necessarily yes. place in the same company. Mm-hmm. But one thing I can like maybe add to this is that I think there is a such a thing that's called like founder market fit. When you understand that you are the right founders to tackle a specific problem. And this is something that you should uh, like consider in mind. So just one example, sometimes like there are companies that are going after enterprise market, which is very sales heavy. So you go and you try to sell a very expensive thing and sign a very like a long contract. This is like their sales is one of the core capabilities. Then there are startups where you can be doing a tool for developers and your main capability is actually being able to understand these developers, communicate in their language and so on. And there might be, you know, equally great ideas and equally great market opportunities, but you as a founder team might be better suited to tackle this or that idea. And this is sometimes that people don't take into account, but I would definitely recommend to check for this and also choose your market. Because again, if you're successful, you're going to be in this market, following these trends, talking to these people for years to come. Even if the inside technology might look like similar, you know, you do machine learning, but say in my past startup, we were working with manufacturing. So I was talking to heads of uh, manufacturing companies and now we are working with uh, data scientists. It's a very, very different markets into how you communicate to them. So you should be comfortable with, uh, with what you choose. How do I choose? How do I know if I like manufacturing if I haven't worked well, there? Ideally, you shouldn't go into market that you don't know about. <laughs> Or we probably should have a co-founder who has experience. Yes, exactly. I'll find someone who can help you get that. Okay. Um, yeah, so what are the things that I should consider? So let's say hmm, there is an idea. There is a co-founder. Um, and we seem to like each other to go well, uh, to go along, to go along well with each other at least to try <laughs> sorry at least to try to do something yes so yeah so what things that we sh- which things we should consider to well, before we actually start a startup mm-hmm. well i suggest that you should agree at least on a few things between you and it really makes sense to you know like really spell it out because sometimes people expect different things but you don't understand it until you start talking so one is Actually, be honest on, on yourself, like why you are doing and how long are you in this game? Because I've heard about this multiple times. And in general, like co-founder breakup is probably one of the most popular things why early stage startups fail. It's like when people really have different expectations. They think like, well, oh, I'm going to be here for a year or two and then I go to work for Google, right? And other person says like, hey, I'm going to really like put everything into this startup, like work days and nights. And you should be honest in this communication, why you are doing, what are you doing, how committed you are. And it's better to know these things early on, right? So that you have very different views on what's going on. Then uh, I think you should really decide what type of company you build. And here, 
if you're new to this startup thing, very important thing to understand is that startups are a very special breed of companies. If you want to raise venture capital, you should build a fundable venture startup, something that attracts, uh, something that goes after a really big market, something that can become this unicorn with a 1 billion valuation, right? Something that can grow really fast. And at the same time, it does not necessarily can, should be profitable in the early days. It can bring you money later on. But the core idea is that you're going to build this company that grows really fast and that has a chance of this shot of becoming something really, really big. At the same time, you can also, for example, just build a service company where you create uh, projects after each client's uh, whatever they want, like custom projects, you build them, you get revenue, you get profits, you can get these profits and spend on your own things. This is not the venture way, right? So you cannot like raise venture capital with that. And sometimes people just don't uh, figure these things early days, in the early days, right? And especially if you are not accustomed to the venture capital, like many things, they are really counterintuitive. So like not having profits, profit is a bad thing. It means that you are not spending money on growth, right? So you should really understand and learn a little bit about this and decide if that's for you, because mm -hmm. this is a very special thing, right? You will have to go raise money, talk to investors, pitch yourself. Maybe it's not for you. Maybe all you want is to have a relatively small growing business where you take it. It's okay, right? You just need to... Mm -hmm really understand that how and do you understand that so i just like is there any rule of thumb well you just should really think about this venture capital startups understand the the benefits and the the problems and then just decide do you want to try it or not if you don't probably you're going after more classic business right mm -hmm. then you just should just maybe you can uh, even take a loan you can invest it you can build mm -hmm. it up that's a great thing and actually you can be better off financially by doing this business compared to a failed startup that tried to, to go to the moon and mm -hmm. did not succeed. Okay, so it's about how ambitious you are. Right? If you're very ambitious, if you want to conquer the world, then you go to venture capital. If you just want to have one client and start developing a solution for them silently, then maybe you just, uh, how it's called, bootstrap? You just well, bootstrap. Bootstrap can still be done for a venture capital startups in the early days. Bootstrap mm -hmm. is more about like not raising capital in the beginning and trying to maybe like reinvest the money that you get if you get some clients or just like leave up your savings or do some consulting on the side. It's just a way how you basically leave to a point when you're going to raise money. Sometimes you want to do this because you want to delay it or maybe you want to actually keep optionality because once you get investor money, you get in this uh, train and you have to continue raising money and growing. And if you don't, you're not yet decided maybe you can like keep both options open mm -hmm. so the caveat here if investors uh, give you money your startup no longer belongs to you only right so now there is there's money of the investors at stake and you basically uh, need to sometimes do what they tell tell you right well they don't in the early days they still cannot tell you exactly what to do but mm -hmm. it's like an expectation of how this is going to happen later stages they're probably going to have more than half of your company but in general mm -hmm. the idea is that these investors they put money into companies that have this moonshot potential with the expectation that they're going to get like 10x return at least right and they put money in multiple companies and they know that like nine out of ten will fail they want to find the one that will not so you have to continue trying to give them this shot and like uh, growing as fast as you can. So pouring money into that. So it's a very peculiar thing and it's really not intuitive if you don't see how this happens. Okay. Yeah. Uh, anything else we should consider before starting? Particularly for the machine learning startups, I think you have this choice of whether you want to do the vertical startup, like I mentioned, when you're solving some specific need of some specific market, or actually if you want to build tools and infrastructure, which for technical people is often like the first thing they think about, hey, I want to build this library, I want to solve this tool better. 
So like there is this choice of yeah, going vertical or, or going after uh, the infrastructure market, which is getting really crowded. We are both in this community. So you see like how many startups are popping up every day. Yeah, uh, if you, you think about MLOps space, right? So there are many companies that are trying to solve uh, machine learning operations problem. And yeah, it does feel crowded sometimes. Okay, so this would be an example if we take uh, one of these uh, companies that would be an example of uh, a tool startup, right? Mm -hmm. So a company that develops a tool for engineers, mm -hmm. while in other case, uh, you, you, I think you said vertical ML solutions. Just, I can give you a specific example. There is this company Tractable that's I think based in the UK and recently raised, recently became a unicorn. What they do, they help you uh, evaluate uh, the, the damages uh, for insurance based on images. So for example, like you broke a car, you take a picture and the machine learning based algorithm automatically judges how much the insurance should pay you. So this is an example of a vertical startup that solves somewhat boring problem related to insurance and how you estimate the damages, right? This is a vertical thing where probably you need someone who understands how insurances work. I heard this term called AI first startup. Probably, what does it mean? It's about the same, so pretty much like AI, that machine learning should be at the core of the technology. But the thing is that sometimes people kind of misuse it because it's just a cool thing to say. So even if you have like a bit of a linear regression in your startup in one feature, right? You can say like, hey, we're AI first. So you should really look what, what, what comes first. Okay, so it's a way to attract more money from investors because investors want to invest into AI, right? Well, I think good investors, they look into the reality, but it's also like about like the hook for the media because like media may be like writing more when it sounds cool and AI first. Also sometimes for the buyers, because like uh, some companies, they would be interested to buy something novel and innovative. And when you say you're AI first, you're probably more novel than others. Mm -hmm. But there is also another angle to that is that many startups they start from the machine learning part, they eventually will grow into much more than just machine learning algorithms or some like system that was there initially. So you will start solving more and more adjacent problems. You will start collecting the data. You will actually add the interface and all the workflows. So you become like a more of an analytical startup that does many things AI included. So do you still be called AI first by, at that point? I don't know. So it's a, just a kind of marketing choice whether you decide to, to do that. And uh, speaking of tools, like the other direction, um, I heard this expression from somebody uh, that building tools for engineers is not always the best idea because engineers, they don't like, uh, engineers like building things themselves. So they don't always uh, like going and buying, they'd rather build something themselves. And uh, if you build something for engineers, so how do you even overcome this? Is it something you also need to think about? You should think about this, whichever market you choose. So like how are you gonna sell to your buyers and if there is any like purchasing intent, but still like you can say, hey, you should not do developer tools, but then look at all these companies that are doing like, I don't know, something like Datadoc and a new relic, mm -hmm. which are doing monitoring. That's a good example, yes. Right? And people are paying for this, then databases, then GitHub and GitLab, right? So they're doing tools for developers, everyone is using them, like Jenkins, CD tools. So mm -hmm. there's a whole plethora of things that people are still paying for, right? Uh, mm -hmm. IDEs. <laughs> yeah, so actually Datadoc is a good example because this was the context when I heard this. So I was talking to, uh, to a couple of people about Datadoc specifically, and one person said that these engineers, they 
like open source, like they would rather have Prometheus, Grafana, everything in their own infrastructure, rather than just paying uh, some external company like Datadog for collecting the metrics. So it's uh, like a tricky market. Well, Datadog. Uh, there is space for everyone on this market, no? They Sorry? still exist. There's uh, space yes. for both, right? So both exist and are growing. Yes, and Datadog is doing pretty well. Right? Yeah. And Grafana too, and Grafana is actually, even though it's open source, it's actually a tool that generates money because they have Grafana Enterprise. So someone is still paying for it. So what kind of skills do I need to start a startup? Well, you know, I think to be a self-starter and want to start a startup and everything else can be learned. So like you should be just comfortable with like learning things constantly and like being comfortable with uncertainty and a lot of rejections and in general, you know, like be a more of an optimistic side, I think, because like if you just like risk averse, you want to have everything like uh, sure and like guaranteed, well, probably startups is not for you, but skill wise, I think everything can be learned because there's like no perfect well-rounded startup founder that knows everything. Like, if you're ready to learn and put some time in it, anyone can, can do So that. self-starter is somebody who oh, starts themselves but what does it mean being well i just mean that like you are ready to take responsibility initiate mm -hmm. things and motivate yourself to do that you know you don't wait for someone to tell you to explain how to do things mm -hmm. you're okay. doing it your own you're like making mm -hmm. a hypothesis you're finding the right people you're talking to them like mm -hmm. you're just like doing things uh, with internal motivation as opposed to like waiting mm -hmm. for someone to explain to you what to do so you just uh, count on your own intuition that uh, the thing you're doing is the right one right well i think you don't need to always you know count on your intuition but you can just say like hey i have this idea so now let mm -hmm. me check how i can uh, verify it right so i'm okay. going to do this i'm going to do that i'm going to talk to these people i'm going to talk to these financial customers but you decide on your own like what to do you come up with mm -hmm. this hypothesis how to to check for it right how to mm -hmm. okay so let's say if i work at a company and they like uh, when my manager gives me a well-specified tasks so then I just take these tasks and do them, then maybe a startup is not the best uh, thing for me, right? Or maybe not yet. I think not that yet. people are not necessarily, you know, static. At some point mm -hmm. in your yeah, career, right. you might uh, feel differently. Mm -hmm. And to, what are the risks? Well, I think we discussed a, a bit that uh, like maybe just working at a big tech company uh, when it comes to money, expected uh, uh, expected value like how much money you would learn like at the big tech is better so what are the risks of building your own startup so you probably need to live on uh, your own saving for some time and there, there, there is no guarantee that this money will go back are there some other risks well actually i think not necessarily you have to live on your money because there are some ways some people start you know alongside their, their day job and then at some mm -hmm. point when they're ready they like kind of roll over and they try to raise capital but in general, like financial risks are huge just because uh, you're most likely going to lose money. Like it's almost guaranteed, even if you like later on going to pick it up. So it's uh, it's not the best financial decision in most cases. And in general, you're, you're highly likely to fail, right? So it's, uh, it's almost guaranteed statistically that you're going to fail as a startup. So you should prepare for it. And I think interesting part here is also cultural acceptance because depending on where you are in the world, people can treat this failure very differently. So for example, if you're in the US, like having a failed startup is like it's something to celebrate. I mean, a little bit <laughs> like over overstating it, but it's perceived as okay, right? So it's learning opportunity for you. In other places in the world, it can be seen as like something damaging your future career if later you try to go and continue your professional career. So something like this should be considered. 
work-life balance can be tough. So if uh, I, I must say that doing startups is often a bit of a luxury. So not everyone can afford this in terms of, you know, like their uh, personal commitments and ability to take risks. So it's not always possible in many places in the world. So you might have a family to take care of. So you cannot risk financially of uh, doing a startup. But yeah, so there are these things related to failure. And I would not mention any, you know, like career prospects or like losing your knowledge because I think like you learn so much that mm -hmm. you can later find uh, maybe new career opportunities for you if you decide to go back to. Mm -hmm. Interesting. That's one of the things uh, I always, always think about. If you, let's say I am an engineer, I'm a data scientist and I start uh, a startup, then most likely I will end up doing uh, other things in addition to that, or maybe I will stop doing data science at all and focus on other things. So one worry could be that in five years, I will forget how to train a logistic regression or something like this. And you're saying it's totally fine because the skills I would pick while building a startup, they would allow me to change it career, right? Well, I think that maybe for the technical skills, at least they might become some a bit rusty, right? Unless you really invest time to support it. But then you also have like more new career paths opening up to you. Uh, maybe it will be more of a managerial role or maybe it can be like a more product role because like now after you have tried to build your own startup, you look at the things, you know, not like just like from a little technical detail how implemented, but you actually look from the big picture, like what are you doing for whom, why it is needed. And it's actually like the sense of ownership and understanding the big picture. It's very valuable. And especially to join to work in other startup, maybe the one that is a bit more successful than yours have been if you're like uh, left your startup to lead some division to grow fast because I know many founders who are like struggling to hire people with a startup mindset and usually someone who tried it is the best candidate for this sort of hire. And uh, yes, you mentioned that uh, when starting a startup, we should be prepared to fail how to be prepared for fail like is it this uh, maybe you just uh, like you know this in i think in buddhism you just uh, see think already failed and then if it fails you don't worry about this or how do you go about this well i don't know about like specific like mental techniques but i think rather you should understand that this opportunity exists and kind of normalize it for you so you, mm -hmm. you shouldn't like associate yourself with your startup and like saying like hey if the startup fails like i'm like wasted and like i don't know like my left hands so this is like a very dangerous thing and like you should understand like hey this is the thing that i'm trying but i know that it might not work and if, if it does not work these are the things that i'm going to learn and that's how it's going to help me of course you stay optimistic because well why else you're doing this but I think just like normalizing it is, is very important so that it doesn't come off as a huge shock if this happens. But hopefully it doesn't. And other thing you mentioned that uh, work-life balance suffers when you do a startup. Is it possible to make a successful startup while working, let's say 40 hours per week? I don't know of any examples. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe there are like, maybe it's me who is bad at it and maybe the people that I meet are not so good at it either but i think like also when you're passionate about something it does not feel always as work right so like mm -hmm. uh, sometimes like uh with microphone we even joke so like there's like a weekend work that is like a, the work you, you like to do so you choose to do it on your weekend because you enjoy doing it but yeah it's, it's still like you're doing something for your startup mm -hmm. okay so you, you said you haven't seen an example I, I, I personally no. firsthand don't know the people who are like living a very relaxed uh, work-life uh, mm -hmm. balance and doing a startup. Maybe like a little, from those who have businesses, like more traditional businesses, I know a lot. 
maybe those who are at later stages when the company is a little bit more mature, they already like figured things out. But if I look at everyone who is at the early stage, who I personally know, maybe these are just the people in my circle. It's always erring on the side of uh, overworking a little bit, but I think by choice. Mm-hmm. You also know, you know, every incremental hour going to bring you like really, you, you know, the value of it, right? So you know, mm-hmm. it's not like in a big company when nothing will happen, even if you don't touch something for a month. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we already started getting questions and uh, uh, you already mentioned that uh, when you start a startup, you don't necessarily have to bootstrap, uh, meaning live on uh, your savings. You can do a startup while uh, still working, so like part-time startup. So what do you think about this? Is it a, a good approach? Because you need to work 40 hours and then you have this uh, part-time startup that eats the, the rest of your week. Like, uh, is it a good idea to do that? Well, I think it's always very individual, right? It's also might be that, for example, at your workplace, you really have like more calm, things are more calm and like sort sorted out. If you're like in a high growth startup yourself, probably you can't do this. In general, of course, it's better if you can dedicate yourself full time, but it's not always feasible. And especially if you're a technical person, you are mostly likely the one who can create this minimal viable product, meaning write the code yourself, right? And then test the demand. So this is something that you can do or try to do. It can be a weekend project or... There are surprising examples of startups that it's not like the code part or like actually like, it's not like a huge, you know, complex system. It's more about uh, figuring out the demand and what is needed and then building maybe a small thing that solves this demand. And then you can see like a huge list of people who sign up for it and say like, hey, it looks like something. Maybe I should go and talk to investors and try to raise money for it. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think actually in Germany, you have some really nice ways to support like uh, younger startups, especially those out of university. So there are some programs where you can apply and you will get some money like uh, as a grant for free. So it's not taking equity. So there are also some opportunities like this, especially in Europe too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there are also startup, uh, startup accelerators that do take a part of your company. Well, they're usually already investors. So you often yeah. need to show something to get into these accelerators. But yeah, this is like an early investor. It can also be like mm-hmm. an angel investor. Yeah, the, the, I know a couple of people from such startup accelerators. So I think the accelerator, the company, gives them some sort of stipend, like some sort of money, monthly loans. So they do not have to starve to death while doing a startup. So they pay them some money while they're uh, looking for an idea, looking for co-founders. But then I think they take like 30% of the company. So I think this is not a classical model. The classic model mm-hmm. will be like uh, to just act as an early investor to take like equity or like have other ways how they take a portion of your company. And then you just like, you can spend this money however you like as a startup, right? But you need Mm -hmm. to pass certain bar to get there. But then there are these other like newer ways. I think it's like entrepreneur first, also like a science layer. It's like some other uh, like organizations like this that actually try to invite individual people and then form teams inside, but yes, they usually take a bit more in equity. I think all this is possible because in the end, when you have a successful startup, everything that's happened in the early days, is not that important. Most of startups make mistakes, like do something wrong with their equity and so on. It's more about like whether it's like 1% of a billion or 1% of, well, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so maybe it's not a bad thing if this startup accelerator owns 30% of- uh, 30 is a bit high to be honest, because it, can, uh, I don't influence. remember the number. Yeah, I think I think it's less, but yeah, just mm-hmm. often startups accelerator would take like five to maybe seven percent, mm-hmm. which is like more reasonable. But yeah, I was actually talking about this entrepreneur first. I just forgot mm-hmm. the name, and uh, they did reach out to me also a couple of times, saying so. Th- this is how they work. So they just 
right on LinkedIn to different people saying, hey, you seem to have uh, great skills uh, uh, and uh, like your technical expertise uh, will be beneficial. So join us uh, and these are the conditions. Mm -hmm. Then probably some people agree and uh, go build a startup. Well, I think Entrepreneur First is uh, definitely a good example just because they continue to exist, right? And it's also, mm -hmm. they don't do it for free because they eventually make money because this, some of the companies become successful. So it, it should work. Mm -hmm. So we talked uh, about uh, like if I'm a technical person and they want to start a startup, this is what I do. What if I'm not super technical? So, and they don't have any resources to develop something. What? Uh, well, probably building a machine learning startup is going to be hard, but building other startups is still possible because now there are so many like no code tools and you can actually hack an MVP, like using something like an Airtable and Bubble. And there are like uh, Webflow and all these ways how you can like create a website, some simple app, like some simple mobile app to test some idea. And then if you see a demand for it, you can already attract a technical co-founder or even investments without doing that. But it doesn't work for all types of startups but obviously for example if you want to build a biotech startup you also probably should not go there without biotech expertise so your options are a little bit limited but they still exist and there are startups especially in SaaS like software as a service that are technical is not the most like it's, it's not like some specific engine inside that makes it uh, differentiate from others right it's more the idea maybe you automate like accounting for some companies and what you do in the first days, you are the one who is doing the accounting for them, right? Through the same interface that you later want to automate. You just want to prove that it can work uh, and people mm -hmm. are ready to pay for it. I've heard this term uh, as productionizing your services. I think this is what you're referring to or productizing, like making your services a product uh, that uh, you can do accounting. So then you start uh, doing accounting for clients and then you start wrapping up in a nice interface and then you let your uh, customers, clients actually use this interface. And then maybe at the beginning, you do the accounting yourself uh, behind the hood, under the hood, but then you can automate it, right? If it can be fully automated, yeah, that's an awesome startup. The challenge is that sometimes it cannot, so you still have uh -huh. this very custom thing and then it's very difficult to scale because you still need someone who understands accounting to deal with each individual client's issues. Yeah, right. Unless you really standardize something. <laughs> okay. And um, another question we have is, uh, I have found a problem in my domain and I have learned statistical modeling and machine learning. Do, uh, do I need to find uh, like a tech expert or a domain expert to help me? Well, it depends. Yes. I, I don't know the details uh, about the exact thing, but I would suggest that if you already have someone who is ready to uh, work with you just like try and go and learn from this first customer right so I think action is like you, you should always like favor action when you're doing a startup because you're going to learn from it and uh, you will learn something new when talking to the client and send for example what exactly is needed so very often startups pivot it's like you change your idea or it evolves it's almost like normal that it evolves and if you look at many successful startups it started as something completely else so I would not overthink it. I would not overplan stuff. I would always just try to go and talk to these potential users and learn something from them. And if you cannot get to these users easily, probably that's not your startup because you would need to continue like generating ways how to reach to them. Yeah, so basically you said favor action and you favor action over inaction, over overthinking. Over overthinking. Right? You cannot like plan like, you know, a super amazing strategy and it will be then fulfilled. It's not for startups. So. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, Talk so to you, people, hear what they say, <laughs> try to do this. So you just uh, sometimes just need, just do it, right? So you just, okay, you found the problem. So the, if you found the problem, then there is somebody who has this problem, right? So you need to go to, to that person and talk to them. Just just do the talking, don't, don't do the coding, you know, without talking to people. Don't, <laughs> don't, don't misunderstand me in this way, because this is open a thing, especially with technical founders, is that you want to do this perfect startup and spend a lot of time, like, doing the perfect code without talking to your users and that sounds awesome right doing a very shiny thing but you might be doing the wrong thing so you should yeah, mm -hmm. so how many people should i talk to before starting coding well i, I think like until you stop hearing new stuff mm -hmm. so like you should try to find people who are like similar in some way so you can say like hey these are these these roles in this industry that might be my potential buyers, I don't know, like accountants, right? So I'm going to talk to like, I don't know, five accountants and like asking them about their questions and problems. And if you still keep hearing like new things, so each of them is saying different things, probably should continue talking. If you talk to maybe 10 and you understand that six of them were saying exactly the same thing, you say like, hey, that's probably reasonable. Mm -hmm. I'm like, get out. I think there is an article from Atlassian or some other company that uh, you don't need many people. Uh, you don't need to interview many people. If you interview like three or five and all of them have the same problem, then you're up to something. You know, I think the problem is how you define that people are the same because like they might come like, you know, for companies from different sizes or they might have like a little bit different roles. So some parts of the problem is actually figure it out. So are you talking to data scientists, machine learning engineers, data science managers in small companies, in big companies, in tech companies, in non-tech companies, in specific industries? These are all like sub-segments which might have different needs mm -hmm. if we talk about, for example, data science world. Mm -hmm. so how many people did you talk to before starting, evidently? Well, we did really overboard. So I think we talked in total before starting to work about like 50 and um, more than hundreds during the early days of development. So you met your co-founder uh, even before talking to these people, right? Well, we know each other with Emily for more than seven years. So we worked together in Yandex and then we did together a second, the previous startup. So we are a ah, team so that knows each other for long. So your previous startup was also with Emily? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I'm just interested to, to, to hear the story. Like how did you, so you work together. And then at some point you decided to make a startup. So how did it happen? Well, talking about evidently. So after working uh, like with so many applications that we created for different companies and most recently in manufacturing world, we saw that there are a lot of problems that are not related to the core technology, but rather to its adoption and also what happens after you put models in production. So I know it, like if you are hanging out in these communities, it sounds like trivial that many people are already solving it. But for example, beginning of last year, it was not that obvious for many. And if you talk to more traditional companies, you would also learn that they actually have the same problems about like how you monitor your models, how you understand what's going on with them, other cannot. And we thought from our past experience that it's an interesting idea. We actually had several different ideas and we went to talk to people to validate it. And monitoring was the one that uh, we saw like a lot of response about. And people were like quoting us like how the models broke and they didn't notice and how it's like annoying. No one wants to do this. The data scientists leave the project and monitoring doesn't happen. The models are left like un unnoticed, like uncontrolled. And so we heard this and we said like, hey, this, so we validated this idea out of some that we have that's going to work on this. And we went on to build evidently and I'm super happy how we are going. And we have a great team. So this is an important part of working together. Hi, Emily, she should be here. <laughs> so just two of us, two of you, right? Yes. And one more person who is uh, part-time uh, as a developer. Uh -huh. Okay. 
So how did you go about, okay, you talk to these uh, 50 people and uh, to actually started starting doing this uh, startup. So what did you do after this? Well, you know, it's like always happening. So like you talk to a few people, you like process the feedback. In, in the process, while we were talking to them, we already like made some mock-ups, for example, and we like tried to show like, hey, is this what you expect? Like, would you like to look at this or that? So it, it kind of happens over, over the process. I must say like when we began working, evidently it was like the beginning of a lockdown. So the world felt a bit crazy, but at the same time, it was very easy to talk to everyone on Zoom because everyone was like sitting home and mm-hmm. <laughs> we were just like talking a lot to people and switching to coding. And in our case, it's because like we are complementary in our skill set. For example, I was focusing on uh, initiating contacts with these people, like following up, inviting people to chat. And Emily was doing the prototyping at first and then the actual coding when we proceeded to development. So what do you do it evidently? So I think you're Everything. technical. You're the non-technical component. Yeah, I'm the non-technical. Well, you, you asked once who is our designer, like I'm our designer for our blogs too. So it, it really evolves over like the part the, the moments in your company, right? So when we were just starting up, it was for example like talking to users and trying to process the feedback, like organize it, so on, come up with ideas. Then when we started working, I now look, do a lot of content. So basically I'm like writing all these blogs that help us like also talk to our users and generate interest in, in what we are doing and uh, talking to investors and potential investors and uh, building up all the part beyond the code pretty much, like how you set up the company, where you incorporate, how you organize all this. So it's like CEO is not a title as in like as a certain role that you do, right? It's like chief everything officer, which is not... <laughs> code in, in our specific example, but I must say it really depends on what startup you're doing. So your role can be different. And it's, if you are, for example, if you were focused on direct enterprise sales, I would be doing the sales. And this is what I did in my past startup. Now we are doing more of evangelizing and talking to users of our open source tool because it's free to use. So we are more interested in people trying it out and giving feedback to us. And that's what I'm trying to do most of my days. Mm-hmm. So talking to people, then writing content, and uh, you're also a designer to some extent, right? (laughs) That's part of writing content. But yeah, it's a joke, right, that you have to do whatever is needed and what you can, right? So in our Mm -hmm. case, we can create this high-quality content, so we focus on this. Mm -hmm. Could have been something else. Okay. And we have a question from Anonymous, and I also have this question. Why do you choose the open source model for Evidently? Well, it's actually a very successful go-to-market strategy for many infrastructure startups these days. So it's it can be also just a rational choice if you do infrastructure. And you can see like at companies like Grafana, they, they actually monetize the open source business, but they create a lot more value by creating this open source tool. And for us, it's also just resonated a lot because it seems a very natural and good thing to do when you create a lot of uh, value for these users. But then you basically monetize only some parts of them, which would be like large enterprises that are ready to pay for what you do. And another aspect of that is that you actually get very fast iterations and feedback loop. So for example, if you just create a, uh, like, you know, like a huge, like monolithic, uh, like closed source thing, you first need to create it and deploy it on some customer and then see like if they like it or not. And with open source, you can release like small features. It can be not yet fully functional, but people are already trying it and they're saying something to you. So it actually helps you to, it's raised a lot faster. So it's a very, I think, nice way to build up your product in public and a good go-to-market strategy for later on because open source doesn't mean that you don't make money out of it. It's just a, a different strategy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because one concern I hear uh, from some people 
saying they, they say why would i open source my code because people would just go and copy my code and deploy it so it doesn't work all right so this is the concern they have so is it a valid concern or well, if you cannot create anything else beyond this code and you don't plan to, probably, but if you will continue building up the product and innovating and building the team, you will be the one who owns all the knowledge and the future vision of the roadmap. And then you can create and maintain the uh, open core products. That's how it's often done. So you have the open source part and you have like some certain functionality, which is part of a paid enterprise offering. And you, as a creator of the project, knows you are the one who knows how it really, really works, right? So you can be successful in maintaining. You also own the community. And companies who would want to pay for it usually want to pay the original developer, not someone else who just like mm -hmm. do it. That said, there is one thing uh, related to cloud providers that has been recently a big thing in the open source world. Because another way how you monetize machine learning or how you monetize open source is that you basically create a cloud version of your product, literally the same product, but you do all the hosting and uh, scaling and provisioning. So basically all the DevOps part, let's say, on, on behind it. And people literally pay for it. So just for you to run this project, product for them. And for example, if someone like Amazon comes and takes the same product and hosts it. Like Elasticsearch, right? Exactly. So they have to introduce a license that explicitly forbids just this part. But uh, still, uh, now it's more of a collaborative relationship with the big cloud providers because they also don't want to be seen as the bad guys. Mm -hmm. like someone else is open source. And if you do the open core, you're not uh, hindered by this. So it's a different mm -hmm. Okay, so it's not a bad idea to develop uh, an open source. I don't think so. I don't think so. But I, I think like many people are a bit too protective over everything they do. So sometimes even like, you know, I, I don't, I'm not going to tell you my idea. I think it doesn't really work like this. It's still a lot of work behind this, behind just like what's out there to, to make it happen into a company. And there are so many great examples like Mongo, Elastic, uh, Grafana, GitLab. They're all open source, right? And they're all huge. And I guess in case of open source, uh, what can happen is that engineers, data scientists find your library. They start using it. And then it reaches the, the management and they see, and then uh, you kind of sell the company, the your enterprise offer, right? So you don't need to go through the management and then kind of force the engineers to use your solution because the engineers are already using it, right? Ideally, yes. Yeah. So if someone has a name, it's called bottom-up adoption. So you come from the bottom and go up in the company. And truth is, big enterprises, they want to pay because if you're running something in production, you rely on it. So you want to make sure that someone is responsible for how, how well it performs and you're ready to pay for it. It's, you, you're an enterprise, right? So you're just paying for security, for safety, for peace of mind that this thing performs really well. And it's a very natural way adopting it from the bottom up compared to say, you know, a CTO who signs a big deal with uh, some huge, I don't know, someone like Oracle and then say, it brings to you the developer and say, hey, you're going to use this thing. And you, you, you don't like it. You don't want to learn the thing that is uh, maybe not transferable in terms of skills to your next place of work, right? Whereas open source is something that's going to be out there. So you're like increasing your own personal value when you work with open source. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's very efficient. And now that enterprises are used to running open source in production, this business model became possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have an interesting question. Uh, so let's say you decide to, uh, to create a startup or a consultancy. How do you deal with clients or customers that do not want to share their data with you? Well, persuade. 
Sorry? On the rally, persuade them on the rally. Ah, okay. No, but uh, I mean, you have to overcome so many barriers when you're selling something, right? So it's uh, it, it's a natural part of uh, offering enough value for people to do something to work with you. It might be just like installing it or running. It's still like work that is needed from their side to adopt it, to learn it. So you should just present the value so high so that people will overcome through this barrier. And it's in the end, it's all about yeah finding this value. So this is what makes a startup kind of like a startup. Mm -hmm. And uh, have you seen any difference, uh, or do you know is there any difference when you build a startup in different countries, for example, Germany, Russia, or the United States? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really, really different, especially if you're building startup for local markets, because when it comes to venture-funded startups, it's all about like your exit opportunity. So are you going to do an IPO and be traded on NASDAQ, or are you going to be sold to a large uh, company that's going to pay like uh, hundreds of million dollars for you. And these opportunities are different in different markets. And the reality of a startup uh, scene is very different. And for example, also the attitude of investors um, in Europe, people tend to be a bit more risk averse. The valuations for startups are a little bit lower. In US is a little bit different, especially in California, where like there's so many startups popping up and there's like a lot of money available to the startup. So the way how you build them like how much money you can get really depends specifically on the market that you're addressing because you can be based in Germany, but you can sell worldwide. Mm -hmm. Or if you are doing some accounting software specifically focused on the German market, you might have like eventually 100% of this market, but it's going to be a very different thing. So it, it, it probably like a whole big discussion, but yeah, there is a difference where you're based and if you're raising from investors, how it looks in terms of startup scene and capital available. And also, if you think about uh, sharing data, which goes to the previous question, that um, I think in Europe people are uh, more hesitant to share the data, while maybe in Russia uh, people say, okay, here are my data, take it, just make sure it doesn't leave the country. Yeah. Well, you know, I think it's actually easier a bit in the US. <laughs> ah, okay. Yeah, it's also because, like, people are, for example, more used to using cloud providers in general, mm -hmm. right? So all your data on your sales will be in Salesforce, right? And in many other places, people still want to keep everything on print. But I must say, you almost any startup what you do in B2B, it will come to data sharing because like even if it's just self software where you're going to put your sales numbers, right? You're putting your sales numbers. It's a, it's a big deal to overcome, but you can see that many startups made it. So it's possible when you provide enough value. But open source is another actually work around, around this. So to use an open source tool in the early days, you don't have to sell data. So it makes it so much easier to try mm -hmm. the tool compared to you know, selling it, uh, sending the data somewhere to the cloud. Yeah, I think um, when Emily did a presentation uh, a while ago at Data Talks Club as well, one of the questions was uh, like, hey, uh, like I'm a bit concerned uh, about my data going to Russia, right? I think what you answered was that, hey, it's open source. You don't have to be concerned. You just take this thing and run on your on your hardware, right? On your yeah, machine. so it's open source. You can run it anywhere. And yeah. I mean, you can still like organize it in a nice way. If you send it to the cloud, you can host it in the right mm -hmm. uh, location. So like mm -hmm. all the big cloud providers, they allow this. But it still requires to pass through some like safety checks in many, many cases. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's doable, though it's hard, but you will have to object if you're selling against many things, like uh, just paying you money is also a hard thing for companies to do. <laughs> you have to convince that you're worth it. And at what point you start thinking about hiring engineers? Like, um, let's say, uh, I don't know, we can maybe think about Evidently or maybe some other startups. So there are two co-founders. Uh, at what point they should hire somebody? 
Well, I think A, when you can, B, when you need. So like mm -hmm. the thing is that sometimes you should not overhire, you know, and build a huge team before you have this so-called product market fit. When you don't even know if the thing that you're building is needed, I think it's best if it's only the founders or very, very small teams working on it. Because one day you can say like, hey, we're going to throw away everything we did. Now let's redo, let's change the course completely. So it's better done in a very small team and you don't want to spend a lot of money on it. But once you understand that okay this is the thing that we're building there is a demand for it so now we are like moving more to the scaling phase or to building up more features that the users want or like to being able to serve more users then when you should hire but it should be guided by the actual like business name not because like hey i have like a feature list of 100 ideas so i need to hire as many engineers as i can to build all this so it's more yeah is there anyone who really needs what you're building okay clear and uh, you mentioned at the beginning that um uh, you need to follow startups. You need to know what others are doing uh, to see what what kind of investments they're doing, what kind of things they're doing, are they pivoting, uh, what kind of clients they have. Is there a way to, to do this, to follow other startups? Well, I think uh, you can join like so many communities where this, once you become part of it, like this information just starts pouring against you. Like you follow some people on Twitter, you and some slacks, you know, you read TechCrunch. I wouldn't suggest, you know, like to just be crazy and try to keep up with everything that's happening. You cannot. But it's just helpful if you were not exposed to this before, you know, to look at some like investment news and maybe try to decode, hey, what are they doing? Why were they attractive to investors? Like, you know, just to learn the kind of like a little bit of reverse engineer. The success also keeping in mind that what's written on TechCrunch might not necessarily be like you know the real thing it's also a bit of a vision what the startup is doing but i suggest that it's it's really helpful to get this general understanding just by looking at others and then maybe keeping up with the news that are related to your domain so that you know like who the big competitors are because you'll definitely be asked about it okay thank you um i think we should be wrapping up do you have any last words well, I think that if you want to be a startup, it's a very good thing to, to try to do so, ideally in a like a nicer way as that you don't have to risk all your money or something. And this these days is a good opportunity to, to do that. I mean, there is a lot of capital available, there are a lot of programs that support you. But I also suggest to be honest about this and don't just like follow the hype and thinking like, hey, I'm going to be like giving talks everywhere because I'm a startup founder, enjoy like this uh, social part of it because it's actually a very hard thing to do and you shouldn't go for it just for fun or for money. You should be genuinely interested in what's going on. Mm -hmm. okay. Where people can find you? Uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, you probably leave some links, but it's always my name and surname, so I'm easily Google. Mm -hmm. Okay, thanks a lot for joining us today and Thank for you sharing so all your experience. Uh, thanks everyone for joining us as well and uh, asking questions. And uh, yeah, I guess that's uh, all. Have a great weekend. Thanks everyone. Bye-bye. And, yeah, and don't forget to check uh, the next week of our conference. There's a link in the description. So 